Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. So we are getting close to, to if you're a basketball fan like me, in some ways it's described as your high holy days. We're getting into the NCAA basketball tournament. First the conference tournaments, and then ultimately to the final four. And one of the things I have always been fascinated about, and I know others have when I've talked to them, is, is what happens behind the scenes. How does that get put together? Because it looks so seamless. You have a building with 60,000, 70,000 people in there, and the games go off nicely, and the regionals go off nicely. But you got to believe it's not as seamless as it appears. Well, we are delighted so that we can find out the answers to some of those questions with having our friend Dan Gavitt with us, the Senior Vice President of Basketball for the NCAA. And he is essentially the man responsible for making sure this at least appears seamless to all of us. Dan, it's always good to see you. Great to see you too, Jack. Great to talk March Madness always. Indeed, no matter what time of the year it is. I'm gonna I'm gonna start with sort of an end question first, and that is, how soon after the final whistle, the nets are cut down, the championship trophy is handed off to the winning team? How soon are you and the staff started to work on the next one? Well, in some cases, years in advance. When we award future Final Fours, we start to get engaged with the communities, you know, in years in advance. This year's Final Four in Minneapolis in 2019 was awarded in 2014. Okay. So they've had five years, you know, essentially. And is that usually that. the lead time? Approximately, like that? That, that, yeah, that's, right. that's about right. You know, we're, we're awarded out now through 2026, for example, okay. so even further ahead. Um, than we have been in the past. Um, How stiff is that competition for people competing to be the site for the Final Four? By number, it's not a huge number. There's about 10 different cities that have the venue, the hotels, the infrastructure to host the Final Four because now the minimum seating capacity is Mm 60,000, so you have to essentially be in an NFL-domed stadium um, and have the hotel rooms and airport and other things that you need to run the Final Four. But it is very competitive among those 10, for sure. I mean, yeah. it's a big deal um, economically for those communities. It's a big deal, um, you know, from a marketing promotions standpoint for those uh, cities as well. So they start working on it. You mentioned themselves, I'm sure, four or five years in advance to, to, to make sure all of this is happening. What is the—I want to talk to you about some of the specifics, but if, if you could point to— to to one or two things that are usually the the more difficult, I don't want to call them hurdles, but the more difficult aspects of putting this thing together. What would you point to? From a Final Four perspective, yeah. um, <clears throat> well, fortunately, the bid process is pretty detailed, so we take care of all the requests and the obligations from the the venue and the host institution or conference in the city or, or state. Up front, everyone understands what their obligations are from a financial standpoint um, and and from an uh, you know logistic standpoint. Um, we you know in the venue we have a seating system that goes and overlays some of the seating that that uh, is in place permanently at these uh, NFL stadiums. So we bring the seating system all the way down, as you know, to the court, which right. is in the middle of the football field, and and expands the capacity of the of the building essentially. Um, so that's always complicated because each building is a little different design. For example, in Minneapolis, they, ha- they, have, um, they have a setup where they can play baseball in there. So we actually have a larger build this year um, for the seating system in Minneapolis at U.S. Bank Stadium than we would other places. 
Um, they'll start building that seam system on March 11th. Wow. Think about that. Wow. Mar- Selection cool. Sunday is March 17th. Right. They will go in there to start building the seating system before okay. the tournament is even set. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Well, and again, having been there, and it's interesting, the configurations, you look at them and say, I'm sure this is not what it usually is. Um, but as I said, to get people, uh, you know, to get as, as many people in, into good locations to see the game, is, it's, it's a bit of a work of magic sometimes. It is. And, it, you know, structures. we have great staff and consultants here and, and folks that work with us that also work on the Super Bowl and the Olympics and other major yeah. sporting events. So we've got a lot of experience we bring to bear on this. And then, you know, beyond the, the years in advance that we, I mentioned, we have a very formal process that starts in June before the April Final Four. We go to the city and meet on a monthly basis with the local organizing committee and all the local authorities, you know, to plan on a monthly basis the, the Final Four. We had our last meeting just two weeks ago in February. That's our last meeting because we don't go in March. We're running a tournament in other locations at that time. But it is once a month, June through February. So I'm always curious for, for you and, and others involved in this, um, how, how many times you get uh, contacted by distant relatives that you didn't know you even had and friends that you don't recall ever having saying, hey, Dan, can I hit you up for some tickets? It does happen. <laughs> it certainly does happen. It, you know, it happens, I mean, in advance, of course, but then once the tournament starts playing out and teams right. advance and, you know, people start thinking, boy, I could actually get my team could be in the Final Four, that's when we get those special requests. Let me ask you about some, some things that, that um, may well be misperceptions. And one has to do with the selection process for the teams that are playing. Uh, a lot of people might realize, well, there's a committee, but I'm sure if you stop a bunch of people on the street, they'd say, no, the NCAA picks their teams, meaning you, yeah. <laughs> since you're in charge of this. Yeah. Hey, tell, tell me how the, the selection process works and what role, if any, then, that you play in the selection process. Yeah, well, I don't get a vote, so okay. that, let's, let's put that uh, out right. there first. I, I am in the room with the selection committee the entire time, as are a couple other members of our staff. And we're there as a resource. We're there to make sure the committee stays on task and follows the policies and procedures that they, as a committee, establish. Um, but because the, ter- the committee turns over every five years, um, committee members serve five-year terms. It's a 10-member committee of, of members from our Association, so they're athletic directors, they're conference commissioners, and um, and they're the ones that have the vote, and and they're the ones that decide the 36 best at-large teams. They're the ones that seed the field, one through 68, when you include the 32 automatic qualifiers, and they're the ones also that bracket the field as well. Um, so uh, that that's largely how it happens. It, you know, people also have the mis- misperception, I think, that it all just kind of happens in March. The reality is that these committee members start watching games and studying teams from the very first game of the year in the middle of November. And every night, all week, you know, every week, right through the end of the season, until they do gather in New York where our selection meetings start on, uh, on March, I think, uh, the, the 13th this year, uh, that Wednesday of that week. And, um, and then they, they select the field. And I, you know, I, I have some friends who have served on it and talking with them. Um, people should realize it's an extraordinary commitment of time and energy. To do that. Because as you said, they just don't sit down at the end and say, okay, who do you guys like here? Um, I mean, they are working constantly in terms of watching the game. So, uh, it, you know, when, when people, I think it's one of the misperceptions, people think they gather for one day and say, all right, let's take these folks and let's go play basketball. Yeah, no, it's, you're so right. And, you know, all these folks have big, important jobs, full-time jobs that, uh, you know, so it's just, it's something that's added on top of that. 
And yet, to a person, all the people I've had the pleasure um, of, of serving and working with, they all love it. They all consider it one of the highlights of their professional careers. And the time and effort they put into it, they think is well worth it because of the passion for the game that they have and, and how important the tournament is yeah. to them. Let's talk about how, how it's changed in some ways. Uh, you, you've, been, you've been actively involved in it for a number of years since you've been here at the NCAA. You were at, at, at the Big East um, involved with their basketball there. You've been an athletic director, been a coach. Uh, in terms of, let, let's talk about the, how the, the games are now shown. Mm-hmm. We go back to a time when there was one network. Yeah. And I mean, you can, I, I go back to a time when there were only three networks in existence anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And when I started doing television news, there were three networks and this and this nascent cable news thing that people didn't know what that was about. Now, as we know, there's this been an explosion of media and media platforms. So talk about the transition from from a, a single broadcast partner. Mm-hmm. Right? At one point in time, it was NBC, most recently CBS. Sure. And then fairly recently transitioned to a sort of a partnership, mm-hmm. if you will, in terms of Turner and, and CBS. How, how has that changed the process, if you will? Well, it's changed it enormously for the viewer and for the fan because, you know, you go back only about a decade ago when CBS uh, had the rights solely. You know, they would, in the early rounds of the tournament, they would regionalize coverage, right? So, you know, depending on who your team was and where you lived, you would get the game in that marketplace of, of your home team, which was fine, but you didn't you missed a lot of other great games because of that. And then CBS had the unenviable task of trying to decide once games started whether they'd stay with them or they would jump off a game in order to get to one that's more competitive. Hard to believe it. That was you know only about a decade ago. I know, right? I know, but it, because it, it seems <clears throat> such like such an antique notion, right? An antiquated notion. I mean, you didn't stay with the whole game. You blew out of one game to go to another one, and and, and then took and, all the phone calls. Uh, you know, exactly. Yeah, switchboard yeah. lighting up. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Turner's inclusion uh, in the partnership has really helped that enormously. So now we have in the early rounds four different networks that carry the game, CBS, TNT, TBS, and True TV, so that every one of the 67 games of the tournament is available nationally. Which um, is great for the, the kids who are playing no also doubt. and their families. No, knowing that, you know, if I can't make it to the game, I can see my nephew you know, playing in the, in the NCAA tournament. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's part of, as you mentioned, the evolution of, our, you know, of the industry, right? So it only makes sense now. And, of course, you can also watch it on March Madness Live, the digital product, uh, mm-hmm. or in so many other ca- ways as well on your phone. So that's what's changed an awful lot. And, you know, we talked, uh, I think, uh, previously about the, uh, the new ranking system the committee uses, the uh, NCA evaluation tool, um, which is replaced the RPI. Yeah, ex- explain that a little bit, what sure. that means. Sure. The RPI was the main analytic that the committee used uh, since 1981 was when it was first introduced 37 years ago. I went back and looked. There were 48 te- teams in the tournament back then. <laughs> Isaiah Thomas was an Indiana yeah. one uh-huh. with Bob Knight. Uh, he was the most outstanding player. Wearing short shorts. They don't oh, wear I those know. anymore. They're right? starting to come back a little a bit, little though. Bit, a, a little, little bit. bit. Not yeah. quite that. <laughs> but they're starting to come back. <laughs> but the RPI, while it served its purpose for a very long time, kind of yeah. became outdated over time. And so the committee and staff made a decision uh, just this past August to adopt a new ranking system called the, the NET, which is short for NCA Evaluation Tool, which is now both a results-oriented analytic and a predictive uh, analytic. So it has both components. It's much more modern and contemporary and, and much more powerful because of that. It evaluates teams 1 through 353 that are eligible for the tournament 
ranks them uh, based on, on their success in results, but also in how they good are they are offensively and defensively, um, and some other factors that were no, you know, weren't taken into consideration previously. So I think it's going to be a significant improvement for the process. You touched base on this a moment ago, but let me ask you to expand on it. The, the, the progression we've had from a single broadcast entity, as you said, now the early rounds, there are four different places you can get it in the, in the broadcast world. Well, how do you see the, the notion of, of streaming and the, the changes in the ways, the ways that we consume our content? How do you see that affecting the, the basketball tournament? Well, it, you know, it's a great question. I'm not sure we know the answer, and frankly, I'm not sure that CBS and Turner know the answer exactly yeah. either. We, we um, renegotiated and extended the agreement we had with CBS and Turner just recently, about two years ago. And when we took it, took it all the way out to 2032 is now the, the length of the deal, which is fantastic for the tournament and, yeah. and for both of those companies. Um, and when we started to talk about where the tournament would be broadcast or shown or available and on what mediums going forward, they asked for and negotiated as much flexibility as possible, and we granted them that because even they in their own industry don't know exactly what that's going to look like by 2032, right? right? I mean, it may not be that it's four channels. It may be that it's available over the top. It may be available, you know, digitally. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they needed to have that flexibility with the evolution of this industry to, to distribute it as widely as it is available now, but in quite possibly a very different medium. Yeah. Last question for you. What... What do you think explains, and you've lived through this, this the, the lifetime, at least within the last couple of decades of this tournament, what do you think explains its enduring attraction? It, it, it Not just enduring, but it actually grows. You have people who have no interest in, in college sports, and yet they will plan out their days around the ability to watch some of these games. How do you explain that? Well, I, I've always tried to explain it a little bit in terms of the fact that I think it may be only similar in some ways to the, the FIFA World Cup, that it is, in my estimation, the most democratic with a small d mm -hmm. sporting event in the world, and certainly in America, because through the 350-plus Division I teams, all of which can qualify through their own conferences to play in this, and once they're in it, among the 68, they can... There's nothing stands in their way from winning six games and winning a national championship. And so you've got, you know, massive state institutions. You've got huge blue bloods with great history. But you've got also schools that are with a 1,000 students that are private schools that, you know, that catch lightning in a bottle. And, the, and they're five guys that play pretty well and a great coach. And, and things. so I think it's very American, right, the, the, the David and Goliath, the underdog. And, of course, it's been reinforced every year because there's upsets every year. And that's, I think, what catches America's attention more than anything. And then the other thing, and last year was a great example with, with Sister Jean. Yeah. There are these human stories that come out of this tournament without fail, and we don't know what they're going to be, um, that are just, that capture, you know, everyone's interest and, and imagination and passion, you know, intersecting life and sport. And so yeah. it's, uh, you know, in every, all 50 states, you know, I give you, you know, and this is, now, if you compare it to CFP, for example, which is a fantastic event, mm -hmm. but CFP in the last in the first five years has had ten different teams play in right. in five years, right. and 
in multiple matchups with Clemson and, and Alabama, which have been fantastic games. In those same five years, there have been 16 different teams that have played in the Final Four mm-hmm. in, in men's basketball from nine different conferences, you know, including Loyola last year. And, you know, so it's, it's, it does have that you know, kind of magic that at any corner of the country and any small school you can think of, the chance of getting there is possible, and it captures the country's imagination. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, uh, there's some words that, that we overuse sometimes, and one of them is is the notion of something being magical, except I think it's absolutely appropriate yeah. <laughs> for all those reasons you said. It's yeah. absolutely appropriate. It's a, it's a marvelous, magical phenomenon that takes place every year, and it just draws people in. I tell the story. I was literally, I was trying back when I was, days when I was a lawyer, I was trying a, a, a federal major espionage case, and basically <laughs> the jurors sent a note to the judge saying, can we break for a couple hours? <laughs> it was during the midst of the tournament. Can we break for a couple hours? We're all interested in watching this one game. And the judge said, sure, I'm interested in watching it, too. That is spectacular. And I always said to myself, there, you've captured it right there. Absolutely. The well, it is. Yeah, yeah, Danny, do a, you and the staff do a, just a magnificent job on it. Um, and I know it's a labor of love for you and everybody else. But uh, our compliments to you in, in advance. Oh, thanks. <laughs> That's it's, how it's going to go. We really see it as a privilege. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's 81 years. Uh, others before us have done an amazing job. After us, they'll be done great. We just feel lucky to have the chance to work on it in the time we're here. Yeah, it's great, and it's always a pleasure to have a chance to chat with you. Uh, so thanks for spending some time with us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. Great being with you. That does it for this edition of the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. Our thanks once again to Dan Gavitt, the Senior Vice President of Basketball for the NCAA. Uh, I'm Jack Ford. Thanks for joining us. We'll look forward to talking with you again real soon.